butchers, barbers, cobblers, tailors, painters, parsons, clerks and jailers. Leave their counters, scorn their trade, sir. Fortunes here are sooner made, sir. Doodle, 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 Here for time they're selling buying, some refusing, some complying. If in payment there's a flaw, sir, they're above the reach of law, sir. Doodle, 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 do. Hello, and welcome back to the second and final part of our series on the South Sea Bubble. What you just heard was a jingle collected by Diane Dugor, a professor at the University of Oregon, satirising the share trading fever that gripped the population of the British Isles as the summer of 1720 approached. In the previous episode, we set the scene, introduced the main characters, and looked at the wider context for the whole affair. If you haven't listened to that, it's probably worth going back and giving it a try. We'll wait. Of course, if you prefer to carry on regardless, feel free. At this point, our protagonists, John Blunt and Robert Knight, and their vehicle, the Hollow Sword Blade Company, which is really a bank, have managed to turn the South Sea Company into a national public-private enterprise. This was designed to take over and consolidate the government's debt, all while trading, mainly, but not solely, slaves, with the Spanish colonies in South America, under a system known as the Asiento, the consolidation would be carried out by persuading people who had a claim on the government because of, say, an annuity, to swap that claim for shares in the South Sea Company. This wasn't entirely pie in the sky. These days, pound-based investors regard British government debt as essentially risk-free. After all, the British government can manufacture as much pound sterling as it likes. But that certainly wasn't the case back in the 18th century. A company with a proper business might indeed turn out to be a better bet than a government which struggled to raise the money needed to fund the wars it insisted on fighting. Anyway, the South Sea Company was the vehicle chosen to carry out this sleight of hand. To get into this enviable position the protagonists had used the oldest trick in the political huckster's book. They bribed anyone that mattered. The king, name of George I, was the governor of the company, basically the chairman of a fairly powerless board, as well as a major investor in the company. The board was largely toothless because the whole thing was being directed by the Sword Blade Company, where Blunt was senior partner and Knight was the cashier. Knight was also the owner and compiler of a ledger, apparently one with a green cover, containing the list of the names of people enjoying a very special, blatantly dishonest deal regarding the company's shares. These people included the king's mistress and her daughters, and a roll call of leading politicians, parliamentarians, members of the House of Lords, including the Chancellor, 
John Aileby, assorted dukes, earls and other members of the aristocracy. The board did have one major perk, however. Members could compile a list of people who would be allowed to buy shares in any share sale. Shares left over would go to the wider public. Four-fifths of the third for subscription, for example, went to people on the various lists. That meant that parliamentarians and members of the House of Lords were deeply involved in the company. Sir Robert Walpole, who, after the bubble collapsed, went on to become what is generally recognised as being the country's first Prime Minister, was a central figure in the affair, chiefly in containing its fallout, and of course using it to his own advantage. So a little background on Walpole is in order. In 1715, he was a senior minister, along with his brother-in-law, Lord Charles Townsend, also known as Turnip Townsend because of his interest in things agrarian. There were also Lord James Stanhope and Charles Spencer, Earl of Sunderland. Sunderland managed to convince the king that Townsend and Walpole were in cahoots with the king's son and heir, George II. The Georges were estranged. They'd essentially fallen out with each other, with the younger one supposedly attempting to take the throne from his father. In 1717, Walpole and Townsend were ousted to the benefit of Sunderland, not to return until 1720. Walpole, along with most members of the elite, bought South Sea shares. However, he also invested in the insurance businesses that were busy issuing shares at this time. The South Sea Company held a series of subscriptions, uh, share sales, at rising premiums. You want to buy a share with a face value of £100, that'll be £300, £400, £500, and so on. To drum up interest, Blunt and Knight used carefully orchestrated announcements of generous dividends and, uh, when necessary, sneakily delayed issuing shares so investors couldn't sell. Partial payment was also allowed. You put some part of the money down and pay the rest over time. This broadened the potential investor base down the social scale. That allowed some of the hoi polloi to take part in the game, as we saw in the ballad I recited above. The whole enterprise depended on there being sufficient enthusiasm to make the South Sea shares look a better bet than somewhat dodgy government debt. That, in turn, depended on fervour, and fervour depended on the share price staying way up there. What's more, the higher the share price, the fewer the shares that would be needed to pay for the annuities the South Sea Company was taking over, and therefore the more that could be sold to the public to raise cash, which could be used to bump up the dividend. In the early months of 1720, this looks like a done deal. At the time, there was a good deal of what an 18th century Alan Greenspan might have called irrational exuberance around. Trading in the shares was, in fact, sufficiently frantic that the company's clerks weren't able to keep up with transfers reported on the three days a week that the registration office opened for settlements. 
When the first subscription and exchange offer got underway, this was in April, there were 70 clerks and 28 subordinate staff to deal with the work, who were all kept busy. According to John Carswell, whose eponymous book on the affair I'm drawing on here, the issue coming to the fore among the general public was what he calls the, quote, intoxicating consequences of imaginary wealth, unquote, which persuaded people around the country to seek and get credit. The rich were spending without much thought, splashing out on displays of extravagance designed to show the increases in wealth, paper wealth, but wealth, that they were enjoying. The directors and officers of the company obviously made out like bandits, busily buying country estates and prompting complaints that city slickers were driving up the price of land to the detriment of the good, honest country squirearchy. This all came out after the bubble burst and the all but inevitable parliamentary inquiry into what had gone on took place. The exuberance rubbed off on other stocks, so the wealthy were coining it there too, particularly in insurance where Walpole invested. Carswell cites the case of one insurer whose shares went from four in February to 20 at the start of May to 50 by the end of that month. This was a project of one Walter Chetwind of the London Assurance Co. Chetwind went on to have an interesting career in Parliament, replete with all kinds of nefarious dealings we won't go into here. The London Assurance Co. was known as Chetwind's Bubble. Uh, Chetwind was parodied in a play of the era called The Stock Jobber as Cheat All. It's important to remember here that back in the day, you couldn't just dream up a company and go public with it. You had to get a charter through the Houses of Parliament. And once you had a charter, you were supposed to stick to it. You weren't supposed to get a charter to make fabrics and then start making diving equipment. Because oddly, for some reason, there were a lot of startups trying to make diving gear at the time. It was also then that the famous company... Quote, for carrying on an undertaking of great advantage, but no one to know what it is, end quote, appeared. There was also a proposal for, quote, a project hereafter to be revealed, end quote. These and similar enterprises were supposed to have been touted around and actually raised money. However, Carswell says he found no evidence for their existence. Some of these adverts were for real, but some were simply jokes, and it seems that these two fall into the latter company. The thing was that the number of companies that were going public was starting to raise concern in the offices of the South Sea Company. The thinking was that a punter buying stock in some insurance company, say, was a punter who wasn't buying South Sea stock, and that was no good. So the idea was to push through a law to put an end to the bubble. And this, the soaring value of other companies that weren't the South Sea Company, was in fact the original bubble. The phrase South Sea Bubble didn't appear until many years later. And 
added to that the sword blade company was supposed to be making you know swords not acting as a bank and as the holding company for a major national enterprise but a few shares and a bit of obfuscation saw off that challenge and the show went on walpole's interest also ensured that insurance companies weren't in affected by the new rules so an act tightening the law was dreamed up and started going through parliament and it was to have unfortunate consequences when it became law later that year for the time being though the issue for the south sea company was how to get the share price up as high as possible and then keep it there in a 2005 paper richard dale johnny johnson and lei lei tang set out how this was done quote first four successive share issues were launched on generous subscription terms involving small down payments and extended calls second the partly paid and therefore highly leveraged script was designed to be popular with speculators particularly as it could be transferred using a simple legal assignment third to increase investor liquidity and consequently to encourage further demand for its stock the South Sea Company encouraged investors to borrow from the company itself against the security of its shares or subscription receipts. A total of more than £11 million was eventually lent in this way. Fourth, the South Sea Company supported its share price by buying up its own stock. End quote. Let's elaborate a little. A buyer of the shares only needed to make a small down payment and was given plenty of time to play the rest. However, if the buyer wanted to get out for any reason, it was easy. And if a shareholder needed the money for any reason, he didn't need to sell. He could borrow from the company using his shares as security. But if, at the end of the day, a holder had to sell and couldn't find a buyer, the company would step in. The Sassy Company also used carefully orchestrated announcements of generous dividends, causing eyebrows to be raised among the financially sceptical who wondered how these could be funded. And sometimes it sneakily delayed issuing shares to some investors, so at that point they couldn't sell. Of course, among those buying was a certain master of the mint, mathematician and alchemist, Sir Isaac Newton. Newton got in early and then sold at a gain of £7,000 in mid-1770. He then decided he'd sold too early, bought back in and apparently forfeited £20,000 when the bubble burst. Given that both gains and losses were on paper, it's not clear how much he actually lost. And Newton wasn't the only big name to get involved. Authors Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift, Robinson Crusoe, were among those buying and selling the stock. Another investor was a bookseller by the name of Thomas Guy. He became an investor in government debt because he was a buyer of Siemens pay tickets, which could be had at a deep discount from face value. Because, I mean, pay your seamen when they've risked their lives on one of your warships. Nah, have an IOU. 
when these IOUs were converted into shares in the South Sea Company, Guy became a major shareholder. He sold out in good time and used the money to endow Guy's Hospital, now a major London teaching hospital. The efforts of Blunt and his partners to manipulate the share price paid off. Shares soared, rising from £130 in February 1720 to £400 in May, and on up to £800 in early June, peaking that month at £1,050. The four subscriptions the company issued were set at progressively higher premiums to the underlying share price, prompting Dale and his co-authors to speculate that, quote, the projectors of the scheme, Blunt and his cabal of South Sea directors, would ensure that the new subscription would be an unparalleled success in its own right, irrespective of the price of the underlying stock or previous subscription receipts, end quote. They go on to say that investors presumably understood that ever-increasing dividends could only be sustained if income from subscriptions continued to rise. Which sounds awfully like a Ponzi scheme. But the fact of the matter was that people were making money. Paper money, true, but for the moment, legal tender. And it was done with credit. As summer rolled around, people speculating in the stock were spending their paper gains both on having a good time and showing off, as well as on real assets. Lord Sunderland, for example, installed as a Knight of the Garter, for non-British listeners, that's the most senior order of knighthood. When installed, he gave a feast costing £2,000. That's a lot now. Back then, it was a fortune. The aristocracy was also covering itself with jewels, drinking to excess and buying land. Walpole was buying estates in Norfolk. Blunt, one of the men behind the whole thing, was later discovered to have acquired six estates. The postmaster general's son, James Craggs, was buying houses in Whitehall, right bang in the centre of the government district of London intending to pull them down and build a mansion in their place. And, strange as it may seem, given the general lack of interest in the lower orders, he was generously tipping his clerks and servants. Good times. But doubts were starting to creep in. The day of reckoning was approaching, helped along by the South Sea Company itself. Remember that law that was supposed to force punters wanting to invest in stocks to turn to the South Sea by banning the alternatives? Uh, that turned out to be something of an own goal, because if that's the only thing you can buy, it's likely to be the only thing you can sell. So if you need to sell, perhaps because of some speculative arrangement you've made earlier that, un that under the new law is no longer legal or possible, then South Sea stock is what you sell. On June the 23rd, the company closed its books for two months, supposedly to process the midsummer dividend. When the books reopened on August the 22nd, ahead of what was to be another stock sale, the fifth, 
The share price was £820 and plunging. By early September, it was clear that the planned share sale was dead in the water and that the South Sea Company would shortly follow it. The issue was now how to bail it out. The Bank of England, the Whig-run institution which the South Sea Company was originally set up to challenge on behalf of the Tories, would have to be involved. After all, banks are where the money is. On September the 20th, an outline agreement proposed by Walpole was reached under which the Bank of England would take over the South Sea Company. But, the bank made clear, under no circumstances would it rescue the Hollow Sword Blade Company. The duty followed a run on the Sword Blade Company, and by 24th of September it had closed its doors for good amid a nationwide financial panic that the episode had caused. Not before it had transferred its remaining assets to a new partnership, though. South Sea stock now headed down good and fast and was at £170 in October. The bubble had well and truly burst. Bring on the recriminations. Something of modern-day interest was taking place in the background and adversely affecting the sentiment. And it's kind of fitting, given that this year is the 300th anniversary of the South Sea bubble. This was the bubonic plague, which had struck the south of France at the end of July. The port of Marseille, where the pathogen had landed, was quarantined, and, according to Carswell, people attempting to escape it were shot on sight. Of course, the plague spread anyway. It would eventually kill about 100,000 people in the rather grisly fashion that it's famous for, None of this was great for investor sentiment. I covered John Law's system and his part in the greater scheme of things in 18th century finance in a couple of earlier episodes. If you haven't already done so, I urge you to check them out. After all, the story of a Scottish murderer, gambler, banker and economist reaching the top of the French state and then blowing up the economy is a fun one especially if you're not John Law or anyone else in France at the time and are 300 years in the future. In 1720, the news out of France was only going to get worse as time passed. There, along with plague, Law's Mississippi system was imploding in a welter of inflation and scapegoating as bonfires of his now worthless paper notes blazed. The money that had fled France and the drastic measures employed to stave off the collapse of the increasingly rickety Mississippi system, and which had piled into the South Sea in the previous 18 or so months, was now looking nervously around and wondering whether a similar fate might await the South Sea Company. Certainly the combination of plague, roaring inflation and rioting, there is plenty of rioting, this is France, taking place across just 20-odd miles of seawater, 
didn't inspire much confidence in the outlook for financial markets. In turn, real estate and precious metals were looking more attractive as time passed. By October 1720, the UK economy was embroiled in a full-scale credit crunch. People who had borrowed against their paper South Sea wealth couldn't pay their lenders. In turn, the lenders were in trouble. Banking houses were going down like ninepins, according to Carswell. In the countryside, landowners were in distress because they had entered into lucrative seeming deals at bubble inflated prices with those very same city slickers who couldn't now complete. Colleges of and academics at Oxford and Cambridge universities also had losses. Shed no tears though, today these colleges remain some of the UK's wealthiest institutions. The partners in the Sword Blade Bank had gone from heroes to zeros in record time. Indeed, someone actually took a shot at Blunt. The distress was international in scope too. In the Netherlands, shares of the Dutch East India Company, as well as several insurance companies, took a beating prompting the Dutch banks to call in loans and sell shares held as collateral. Meanwhile, the French, who, as we saw, were burning John Law's discredited banknotes, were doing all they could to lure back the newly monetized bullion that had early fled the country. And of course, if the gold and silver is in France, it's not oiling the wheels of commerce somewhere else. On top of all that, the drastic quarantine measures the various national authorities had imposed in response to the Marseille plague outbreak had interrupted trade. Carswell reports that the Dutch burned three ships that had arrived from the eastern Mediterranean, complete with their cargoes still on board. This, they forced the crew to wade ashore naked and undergo quarantine on an islet. And these days, people complain about being compelled to wear a mask in the supermarket. Back in Britain, the question was what to do to retrieve the situation. At the end of September, the idea of having the Bank of England buy the South Sea Company at £400 a share, an idea known as the bank contract, became the official rescue strategy. Behind the scenes, however, that prompted a run on the Bank of England, which, while the run was seen off by mid-October, added to the damage of, to the credit system as the bank called in loans and bought up bullion. It also seems to have convinced the BOE that it wanted nothing to do with the rescue plan as it stood, and it resolved to wriggle out of it. However, it didn't bother to tell the government or the directors of the South Sea Company that it was backing out. The proposal wasn't finally declared dead until November the 9th, sending South Sea shares down further still. A couple of weeks later, on November the 19th, our friend Walpole finally let it known he was making progress with an alternative solution. The surprise move propelled him into the saddle in the bailout, 
about his decision to leave the government to stew for 10 days caused huge resentment. However, he was hailed as a saviour. After all, there wasn't an alternative plan. And anyway, from the government's point of view, the main thing was first to find a solution that avoided an inquiry into what had gone on. Walpole's rescue plan, when it emerged officially on December the 23rd, that's two days before Christmas, boiled down to converting £18 million of shares, or roughly half of the South Sea's £38 million of stock, into shares in the BOE and in the East India Company in equal portions. This was problematic in that the BOE's capital at the time was £5.5 million and the East of India Company's was £3.2 million. The proposals, therefore, would roughly triple the pair's capital without giving them any new business to sustain their dividends. And back then, equity investment was all about income. Both the House of Commons and the Lords opened inquiries and began sending for papers from the company. The Commons, in the teeth of government opposition, set up a so-called secret committee with inquisitorial powers to look into the matter. This took place in the new year, 1721. It was secret because MPs who weren't members couldn't just take part in the proceedings as the fancy took them. The committee was headed by an Irish Protestant called Thomas Broderick, quote, a man of unquestioned integrity and formidable strength of character, end quote, according to Carswell, and a long-term opponent of the South Sea Company. The committee set to work immediately, setting up shop in South Sea House and beginning to grill officers and directors of the company, Sittings took place every day by Sundays for the following three weeks and lasted from nine in the morning to eleven at night. The Lords also set up a committee. The 100 or so Lords who had benefited from the company's largesse were now nursing losses. Meanwhile, senior figures who had been bribed now saw their only hope as being to throw the South Sea Company's directors to the wolves. There was a lot of talk of hanging them, and a bill stripping them of their gains was in fact passed. We'll come back to that. Aware that the net was closing around him, on January the 18th, 1721, a Saturday, Robert Knight fled, accompanied by his son and the famous Green Ledger, containing the names of those who had benefited from the South Sea Company's egregious law-breaking and bribery. He left behind him a letter informing the directors of the South Sea Company that he was now in Calais. Oh, and uh, he had nothing um, to reproach himself with. It turned out he had prepared his escape carefully. He'd sent cash abroad and transferred title to his property to a crony and in advance he'd uh, privately booked a yacht to take him from Dover to Calais, where he was met by a representative of John Law, he of the Mississippi scheme. That's according to Carswell. 
I can't find any other mention of this relationship in any other author, but I may well be missing something. News of Knight's flight was greeted with rage from all quarters in Britain and its establishment. The result was that for Blunt and Co, it was every man for himself, and the best chance was to be found by coming clean and blaming someone higher up the pole. The Canaries started to sing. As Carswell points out, quote, For the next few months, therefore, nothing was quite what it seemed. The Commons' demands for the extradition of Knight were designed to save him as a witness, not punish him as an accomplice. The Ministry's apparent compliance with these demands was accompanied by secret moves to keep him in exile. Those directors who knew most became the allies and ultimately the protégés of the Broderick Committee. Fourteen South Sea directors were thrown in jail in the immediate fallout and Blunt came forward as the star witness of Thomas Broderick and his secret committee. And he named names, royal ladies and all, as he later said. Knight instead went from Calais to the Austrian Netherlands, from where extradition to Britain was very difficult, and installed himself at the best hotel in Brussels. The British Chargé d'Affaires got an arrest warrant, but Knight heard about it and flew the nest. He was caught before he could cross the frontier, and taken off to the citadel of Antwerp. He was relieved of his papers, which were handed over to the Austrian deputy governor, who, realising he was holding a very hot potato, handed them straight back to the Chargé d'Affaires. In the normal course of events, the papers would have gone back to the Secretary of State in London, Lord Stanhope, who was deeply implicated in the South Sea affair. He, though, had collapsed and died, and the British government was, anyway, in a state of panic. Johann Hoffmann, the Austrian representative in London, then passed on a request from a highly placed personage who absolutely did not want to be identified. This was that King George felt that Knight should, on no account, return to England. This was hardly surprising, for the king's position would have been threatened had Knight ended up on the witness stand. The thing was that the area where Knight was being held, an area called Brabant, had a long-standing constitutional provision that absolutely forbade extradition. This provided a handy screen for the Austrian authorities to hide behind, much to the indignation of the British public, and the atmosphere in Britain was febrile. Stanhope was succeeded as Secretary of State by Townsend, Walpole's ally. Walpole was now effectively in charge of the country. Townsend probably received Knight's papers, which would have set out a map of the corruption that had surrounded the whole affair. Here is Carswell's account from his book. Sunderland's complicity, attested by Blunt and Holdrich, 
Charles Stanhope's vast bribe and the subsequent cooking of the Sword Blade Company's books to conceal it, the Duchess of Kendal and Countess von Platten being introduced on the ground floor by Secretary Craggs, the A to B playing the market in the first half of 1720 to the tune of nearly £150,000, the utter disregard of the company for its own rules about the loans, as a result of which it had lost more than £11.3 million, £4.5 million more than had been authorised, and now held the absurd security of about £3.5 million of its own stock and scrip. Further reports were promised. It was an appalling and disheartening document, unique in British parliamentary history. Someone moved that it should be printed. Walpole, in persuading the House not to authorise this, scored his first little victory. On the basis of the report, the House of Commons set about trying the guilty parties, a move that was quite a departure constitutionally. John Aylaby, the former Chancellor, was expelled from the House and sent to the Tower of London, as was Sir George Caswell, a swordblade partner. In the absence of an important witness, i.e. Knight, and with the help of Walpole, Lord Sunderland was actually acquitted. He was due to be followed on trial by Postmaster Craggs, but that move was blocked when Craggs ended his life with a dose of laudanum. The situation as it now stood had foreign policy implications. In night, the Austrians held an important card they could choose to play against the British, using it to extract concessions. While Walpole and the government were forced to publicly continue to demand Knight's extradition, privately they wanted no such thing. The Austrians, in turn, wanted to get Knight off their hands, but needed to wring the maximum advantage out of the situation. They also didn't want to compromise the position of King George and the House of Hanover, because, to their eyes, the alternatives were worse. So the obvious solution was for Knight and his son to escape, and that is what happened. In September 1721, one of the guards, the duty sergeant, was offered a large sum of money, a promotion, and a new name to become the fool guy who had accepted a bribe to allow the knights to escape. There's a lot of air quotes in this. The escapees were escorted across the French border and dumped in a remote part of the Ardennes forest and told to get lost. They did, ending up in Paris, where the still wealthy knight pair set up as a banker and financial consultant. Back at the Antwerp Citadel, workmen made a hole in the wall and attached a rope ladder. The duty sergeant, now much richer, disappeared to join another regiment with a higher rank and a new name. In return, the Austrians got a letter from the king's representative asking them, in his name, to arrange the escape, which eventually could be useful. They also received British support that deterred Spanish aggression in Italy and the removal of some of their concerns in the Eastern Baltic. Back in Britain, the secret committee had kept tempers high with six more reports crammed with details of misconduct. A bill was passed 
forfeiting the estates of the highly placed beneficiaries of the South Sea's largesse. The way it worked was somewhat arbitrary. Transgressors were forced to make a list of their assets, liabilities were subtracted, and some part of the remainder was confiscated. This allowed people, Walpole mainly, who was supervising the process, to intervene on behalf of the favoured few, stacking up goodwill for later use. At this point, Robert Walpole had more or less taken over the government, installing friends and family in key positions and booting out the old guard. This was the beginning of what was to be dubbed the Robinocracy, from a diminutive of Robert, plus the suffix of ocracy. As for the South Sea Company, the money raised from the beneficiaries it had created went to at least partly make good some of those who had been defrauded during the company's various money raisings. The Bank of England and the East India Company took over the stock of their fallen rival. The company continued to exploit the slave trade with the Spanish colonies in the New World. It continued trading for another 40 or so years, but in reality, it was a debt management company for the government. We'll end it there. The affair has lived on as a case study in financial bubbles and investor behaviour, but this podcast is not the place for that discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode, and I would love to hear any feedback. Please rate and review the show on whichever podcasting platform you choose. Subscribe and join me next time when we move forward 70 odd years and look at the first financial crisis to hit the US as a newly independent nation. Thank you and goodbye.